So you're in your Bible, Revelation chapter three. I just want to jump right in. Verse one says, write to the angel of the church in Sardis. Now we've been going through these seven letters. We're on letter number five to the seven churches, letters from Jesus. These are real churches in Asia Minor that existed at the time. And so Jesus gives uh, some criticism to the churches, most of them, and then some encouragement to the churches, some warning to the churches. And now we come to the church at Sardis. Uh, Many people believe that these seven churches, if you look at them on a map, they really form, uh, they follow, I should say, an ancient postal route as, as letters and parcels would be taken from one city to the next. And, and this would have been a, on a postal route. If, if you look at it on a map, perhaps more than you want to know, but it really makes the shape of a cursive R. So you start at Ephesus up to Smyrna and Pergamum, and then you go over a little bit as you're making your R to Thyatira. And then now we're down with, uh, where are we? Sardis and Philadelphia and Laodicea. Usually as we've gone through these, I've given you some of the political setting of the church and and talked about how that connected with what was going on in the church. But there's really no connection here at the church at Sardis with what was going on in Sardis. So we'll skip that uh, for today. Uh, But let's continue to read. He says, thus says the one who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars, I know your works. You have a reputation for being alive, but you are dead. That's just a reminder that things aren't always as they appear, right? We need to make sure that our spiritual health is strong. And there are some people, there are some churches that look good on the outside, but on the inside, there's just decay. On the inside, there's no spiritual health. And that's, that's what he says of the church at Sardis. Verse two, be alert and strengthen what remains, which is about to die. For I have not found your works complete before my God. That's, that's his warning. Verse three, remember then, What you have received and heard, keep it and repent. If you are not alert, I will come like a thief and you will have no idea what hour I will come upon you. He says you need to change. You need to repent. Uh, Change always starts with what? With change. (laughs) I know that may sound funny, but oftentimes we have a desire that things will be different in our lives, but we never take that first step. It's It's just a good intention. It's just a dream or a wish. Change starts with change. And he tells this church, you need to be different. There's sickness in your spiritual lives and in the life of your church. You need to repent. It starts with a change. Go before the Lord. Make the change you can make and let God make the bigger change in your life. But change starts with change. Verse four, but you have a few people in Sardis who have not defiled their clothes and they will walk with me in white because they're worthy. He says there are a few people and they're probably a little odd because they're just not like everybody else. And as Christians, that's something we read about throughout the New Testament that our lives ought to just be a little different than everybody else's, right? Our marriages ought to look different than everybody else's. The way we spend our money should look different than everybody else. The things we watch on television should be just a little bit different than everybody else. The way we raise our children should be just a little bit different. And he says there in Sardis, there were some who were walking, uh, just a few, they were different, but they were walking with the Lord. Now verse five, and here's where I want us to focus our time. He says, in the same way, the one who conquers will be dressed in white clothes and I will never erase his name from the book of life, but I will acknowledge his name before my father and before his angels. 
I want to talk to you for a few minutes about the book of life. What in the world is he talking about when he says, I will not erase your names from the book of life? Now, this is going to require our thinking caps. Uh, th this is going to be uh, something we're going to have to really think hard about. But, but I want to take just a few minutes and, and walk through Scripture. We're going to look at a lot of passages of Scripture today. I want to walk through Scripture and answer some questions so that we will all understand and know what it is, what is the book of life. Now, uh, if you're looking at your outline this morning, we're way off the page. I read this scripture uh, early this morning, and, and as I read this uh, letter, already had a message prepared, but I just uh, felt an impression that I needed to focus on a different verse, and so we started with a blank piece of paper early this morning, and uh, we'll put this online so you can catch some of the verses you may miss. Uh, but if you're wondering what's the answer to this blank, he doesn't seem to get to it, uh, I, I will not. And so, <laughs> so here's some questions I want to answer about uh, the book of life. I, I, I first of all want to answer the question, what is it? What is the book of life? And then why does it matter if my name is in the book of life? Is it important? Next, I want to answer the question, how do I get my name in the book of life? I want my name there. So how do I get it there? Can, can my name then be erased from the book of life? That's what he speaks to directly here. And then finally, what will happen when this book one day is, is opened? Uh, so let's, let's deal with those questions. I'll go through them pretty quickly. Uh, first of all, what is the book of life? It is simply a book that has the names of every person who is a child of God. I don't know how God handles it if people have the same names, if there's a social security number or something, a heavenly number. But, but in this book is a list of all of the people that, that are children of God. If your name is in the book, you're a child of God. If your name is not in the book, you are not a child of God. I think the best way to imagine this is to think about the old family Bibles that a lot of families used to keep. You probably have one of these in your family, maybe from generations ago, where they would have this big Bible and in the front of the Bible, what would they do? They would record the births, the marriages, they would record the deaths, they would have the family tree there so that if you wanted to know really who was in the family, you could just look in the front of this Bible. Well, God has a book and it has the births and the deaths and most importantly, it has a list of every person who is a child of God. That's the book of life. All right, that's question one. Let's look at number two. Why does it matter if my name is in the book of life? Well, one verse will answer that. Revelation 20, 15. Anyone whose name was not found written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. The Bible says that there is an eternal destination for every person. We'll either spend eternity with God, with Christ in heaven, or we will spend eternity separated from God, ultimately in a place called hell, the lake of fire. And here he says clearly in this verse that if your name is not written in the Lamb's book of life, if your name is not written in this book, that you will spend eternity separated from God. He says specifically here, thrown into the lake of fire. So does it matter if your name's in the book of life or not? Absolutely, it matters. Question number three. How then do I get my name in the book? So this may seem like the most important question and it is perhaps the most important question so far. How do I get my name in the book? Now, the answer to this question is, is complicated, but it's not confusing. Uh, it's not confusing if we just 
take God's word uh, for what it says, and we understand that the Bible was written for normal people to understand its words. Uh, I read a book this last week about uh, St. Bernard of Clairvaux and his writings, how they compared, his interpretations, how they compared uh, with the interpretations of Luther and some of the reformers. And let me tell you, it was so complicated. I finished the book, I have no idea what it was about. No idea at all. Now, those are important things and somebody needs to know what all that is. But the Bible's not written for people who can read St. Bernard in Latin and Luther in German and put those things together and contrast the differences. No, the Bible was written for regular people like me and you who just read regular words and understand them in a regular way. Now, we need to invest ourselves in God's word. We need to study hard. This isn't something that, 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 that you can just gloss over, that you can just skim through. But the Bible means what the Bible seems like it means uh, in almost every single place. So this will be complicated a little bit, but not confusing if we just embrace the Bible for what it says. Now, why is it complicated uh, to answer the question, how do I get my name in the book of life? There's one verse, and really there are more than, there's more than one verse, but I'm going to give you one verse that, that highlights why it's complicated. Revelation 13, 8, and I'm really just going to read to you the middle part of the verse. Everyone whose name was not written from the foundation of the world in the book of life. Now, here's what that verse tells us. All of the names that are in this book were written before the foundation of the world. So if your name is in there, when was it written? It wasn't written a year ago or 10 years ago or 50 years ago. It was written before the foundation of the world. It has been there for a very long time. In fact, God's not writing any new names in the book. It's, it's finished. The book is, is, is completed. All the names that will ever be written in the book have already been recorded in the book. The names were written before the foundation of, of the world. The book is closed, in a sense. It's, it's closed. There's no addition to, to the book. And so that makes the question, how do I get my name in the book, complicated if the book is closed, right? So let's see if we can, if we can deal with, with that. Two two words that we need to address that when we address these two different principles and we put them together, so don't prejudge this until we get to both of those. When we put these two words together, I think we can understand how it is we get our names in the book of life. The first word is the word predestination. Do you know that word? You know, to a lot of people, that's an ugly word. Uh, but it can't be an ugly word because it's all throughout the New Testament, right? Sometimes people will ask me, Pastor, do you believe in predestination? Well, how could you say no since it's in the Bible over and over and over? We have to believe in predestination if we believe the Bible. Uh, but, but what does the Bible say? Pastor, I, I've always struggled with that. What does it mean? Well, the word predestination simply means to determine the destination before the journey begins. Predestination. So if you're going to uh, go on vacation and you're driving your car, uh, you get in and you punch it into your GPS, here's where I'm going to go. And even before you pull out of your driveway, you have determined the destination. That is predestination. The destination is determined before the journey begins. Uh, 
So how is the word used in the Bible? Let me give you some verses. Ephesians 1.4 says, For he chose us in him, he, speaking of God, chose us in him before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. So when was I chosen, when was the decision made that I would be holy and blameless in the sight of God? It was chosen before the foundation of the world, before the foundation of the world. Now hold on to that, don't, uh, don't throw anything yet. Uh, let's look at another verse, Ephesians 1.11. We're just gonna believe the Bible for what it says. Bible says there, in him we have received an inheritance. So in God, in Christ, we have received an inheritance because we were predestined according to the plan of the one who works out everything in agreement with the purpose of his will. It says that we have received this according to this predetermined, this predestined plan of God in heaven. Let me give you one more passage, Romans 8, 29 and 30. Those he foreknew, so this is God looking down through the corridors of time, he foreknew these people, he knew about this ahead of time. Those he foreknew, he also predestined. So he knew about it and then he destines it, he determines that they be conformed to the image of his son. So he's already determined that that person will be conformed to the son so that he would be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters and those he predestined that he predetermined. He also called them. So they, they received this call uh, and he also justified them so that they are in fact saved. It's not that some are saved and some are not. He says those he predestined, those he also called, he also justified and those he justified, he glorified. Uh, the Bible, when it, when it deals with the question, uh, says clearly, clearly, just the plain words of scripture that God chose whose name would be written in the Lamb's Book of Life before the foundation of the world, he chose. So does that mean then that we do not choose? Is this all something that is God's choice and not in any way is it our choice? Well, we clearly see here that it's God's choice, but this is not the whole story. Let me share with you now uh, more of what the Bible says. Not only does it say that God chooses before the foundation of the world, but it also teaches that whosoever will may come that whoever would respond to the Lord and the calling of the Lord, that that person would be saved uh, by the Lord. Now, let me walk you through that biblically, very quickly. First of all, the Bible says that Jesus died to forgive everyone's sin. When Jesus hung on the cross and he died for sins, whose sins did he die for? Well, the Bible says clearly he died for all sins. 1 John 2, 2, he himself is the atoning sacrifice for our sins and not only for ours, but for those of the whole world. He died for everyone's sins. Now somebody will suggest and, 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 and godly people who know their Bibles, you know, as, as much as anybody else, some of those people will suggest that the world here does not mean everybody, it means a select group of people. Well, you know, in, in my understanding of scripture, as I've already said, it generally means what it seems like it means. God's not trying to trick us. God's not trying to confuse us. God is the master communicator. It means what it seems like it means. And it says here that he died for the sins of the whole world. 
But if we dig a little deeper and we see how that word world is used in 1 John, even right there in that same chapter, 1 John chapter 2, we clearly see that it's, it's a word that, that refers to both those who are following God and those who are not following God. We can just see the definition as it was used by the same author in the same place. World means world. It is also true that there is at least one occasion in the Bible where scripture plainly says that Jesus died for a specific person. He died to pay the penalty for their sins and still that person was lost. Let me read this to you. Second Peter two, one, it says there were false prophets among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you. So it's talking about these people that are heretics that are false teachers uh, they they uh, are doomed to destruction. We'll see that in a moment. But listen, it says they will bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them and will bring them to bring swift destruction to themselves. So the Bible says that Jesus died for all the sins of all the world so that anyone can come to know Christ as the Savior. And, and the Bible clearly says that even some people, some specific people, Jesus died for them, yet they refuse and are lost. So what makes the difference then between who is forgiven and his names in the Lamb's book of life and who is not forgiven? Well, John 1.12 says, to all who did receive him, he gave them the right to become children of God to those who believe in his name. So it says that if I will receive him and I will believe in his name that he has given me the right to become a child of God. It's even plainer in Acts 16, 31, where the command is given, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, you and your household. The Bible says that when the Holy Spirit stirs in my heart and I understand I'm guilty of sin, it starts with what the Lord does, but when the, when the Holy Spirit stirs in my heart, if I will respond, if I will believe, if I will receive him, then he will save me because of what he did on, on the cross. Is it true then that some people can resist that? If the Holy Spirit is stirring in your heart, is it really in some way up to you? Well, it is. Acts 7.51, Jesus said, you stiff-necked people with uncircumcised hearts and, and ears. He's talking to people who are, who are lost. He says, you are always resisting the Holy Spirit. He says, the Lord, the Holy Spirit of God is stirring in your hearts and you're refusing that. The Bible says this in other places, but it also says in John 3, 16, that whosoever will put their faith and trust in Christ, that that person uh, can receive eternal life. Uh, does the Lord want people to be his children? Does he want people to be forgiven? Absolutely, that's his heart. 2 Peter 3, 9 says, the Lord does not delay his promise, but he is patient with you in this, that he is not willing, he is not wanting any person to perish, but all people to come to repentance. I, I, I heard a, a pastor explain it this way. Imagine, and, and every time I use a farming illustration, I get calls the next week that I got it all wrong on the farming ends. I don't know anything about farming, but, but just bear with me on the farming part of this. But imagine you're a, you're a farmer, you've got your cattle, and, uh, but you've got a pond there that you use for, you know, to water your cattle, if I'm using all the right words. 
But it's a dangerous pond for some reason. I don't know why. It's dangerous for people to go swimming in it. So you put up these signs all around. You put up these signs. Warning, do not swim. Dangerous place. And if you pass those signs, there are more signs. Warning, you will die if you get in this pond. Do not get in this pond. You pass those. And then there's a barbed wire fence around the pond with more signs. Warning, warning. So... Uh, three teenagers, teenage boys decide we're going to swim in the pond. So they go past the first signs. They see them. They understand that it's a warning not to go, but they just refuse. And then they pass the second set of signs, the third set. They climb somehow. They climb the barbed wire fence and they get in the pond. And now they're struggling and they're drowning. And they call out, somebody help me. Well, about this time in this made-up story, the farmer comes along in his tractor and he sees those three boys drowning in the pond and they're calling for help and he could help if he wanted to. Now, what is the, what is the farmer going to do? Now, there are three different things he could do and, and we learn something from each one. He could just decide to ignore them, Right? I mean, it's not his fault that they're drowning in the pond. He put up all the signs he could put up. He put up the barbed wire fence. He made it as hard as he possibly could. These people rebelled against his instruction. They ignored his advice. He could just let them drown, right? Now, you're thinking he wouldn't be a very loving farmer if he did that. And, and, and you perhaps, you're right, but he would be just, right? He, he does not have to save these people. He's already done probably more than, than, than he should have had to do. It's his pond. They shouldn't have been there to start with. And so he could just let them die. And if he did that, we could say that he was a just man. And we're going to see this man as, as God in a moment. So we could say of that God that he is a just God. If God allowed you and I to die in our sins and he didn't do anything to help us, listen, he would still be a just God because I deserve death and you deserve death and I know what's right and wrong and I have chosen to violate that. If God just, just, just stepped away from it, he would still be a just God. But let's say that the farmer has you know, a, a soft heart and so he pulls in a tractor close to the lake and he decides that he's going to throw out a rope. You know, the boys are spread out a little bit, but he decides he's just going to throw out one rope to one boy. So he, any, many, money, mo, he picks which boy he throws it to and he throws it out to that boy. The boy grabs hold and he's pulled in and he's rescued. The other two drowned. Okay. Now, what do we know about the farmer? Well, from the perspective of the two boys that drowned, he's still just, right? They still got justice. They did something they shouldn't have done. He warned them, they died, that was the consequence. So from the perspective of those two boys, he's a just man. From the perspective of the one that was rescued, he is a merciful man. Does that make sense? Because he showed mercy to him. But now, let's say he throws out three ropes. He throws out a rope to each of the boys. All they have to do is to grab hold of the rope and he will pull them in. One of the boys grabs the rope. He's pulled into safety. The other two say, I don't want your rope. I will save myself. I will swim to the shore myself. I will figure out a way. I don't want your rope. 
And those two die because of that. Now, what can we say of the farmer? Well, from the perspective of the one who was saved, the rescued, who is the farmer to him? The farmer's merciful, right? But we can also say that the farmer was merciful to the other two, right? They may not have grabbed hold of the rope, but he showed just as much mercy to them as he did to the, to the one who was rescued. Our God is a merciful God, and he throws a rope to all people, and some will grab it and some will not, but he is merciful from the perspective of every person that's ever been created in the image of God, every person that's ever drawn a breath, from that person's perspective, God is merciful. For those that will spend eternity in heaven, God is merciful. For those that spend eternity in hell, you still would have to say God is merciful, merciful. So how do you get your name written in the Lamb's Book of Life? You know, it's, it's complicated, but it's not confusing. God is sovereign. He is in control of everything. Nothing happens that is not under his influence. Nothing happens. That is true. You can't deny that in God's word. But it is equally true that God throws the rope and we have to grab hold of that rope. Somebody will say, well, pastor, in my mind, I just can't, I, that doesn't fit together. Well, uh, okay. <laughs> you know, honestly, it doesn't really fit together in my mind either. But there are all kinds of things that don't fit together in my mind. I don't understand the incarnation, that, that, that Jesus is God and becomes flesh. I, I, I've, I've studied that, prayed about that, read books about it, taken classes on it. I don't understand it. It's a mystery to me. I don't understand the Trinity, how there's one God, one person, or three persons, one essence. I don't understand how that is. I've studied it a lot. I've read books about it. I've taken classes on it. I don't understand it, but I accept it. It's what the Bible teaches. There are all kinds of things. I could give you a whole list of things I don't understand. But just because my puny little brain can't understand it doesn't mean it's not true. I, uh, I get in trouble when I talk about my family, but one of my kids, I won't say which one, but she's not here today, so you, it narrows it down to two. So one of my kids uh, expressed some criticism to, for mom and dad because we didn't spend money on something that she thought we should spend money on. And she wanted money spent on that. And I said, well, we, we can't afford that. We're not going to do that. Well, then she did a little, a little tallying and she figured up that we had spent money on these other things. And she wanted to know, she said, I don't understand how you could spend money on those things and not spend money on this thing. You know what? I don't care if you don't understand it. <laughs> That's why you're the kid and I'm the parent. She wants to know why. Well, I'm not even going to tell you why. You don't even get to ask that question. So when I approach God's word, and I don't mean to make light of something that is very serious. When I approach God's word, I'm just going to believe it. God wants to spend money over here and not over there. I don't have to understand that. If, if God says here clearly that God is, uh, God is in control and God over here says that, that, that I can grab the rope, I'll choose to believe that. There are two more points, but there are not two more minutes. Let me, uh, let me pause this right here. If you'll bow your head and close your eyes for a moment. I believe the Lord has us stopping where the Lord would have us stopping. When Jesus died on the cross, that was God throwing the rope to everybody.
And we can choose to grab hold of the rope and trust in what Christ has done for our salvation. Or we can go it on our own. Either way, God is merciful. That's not the question. The question is, will we grab hold? If you've never grabbed hold of the rope, there's nothing more important than that. Your name must be written in the Lamb's book of life. None of us will negotiate at the end. None of us will make a deal when we stand before God. It's either written or it's not. Father in heaven, I pray for all those that hear my voice this morning. May our names be written in the book of life. And may it be true of us that we have grabbed hold of the rope, the lifeline of Jesus Christ that's been cast our way. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together as we sing.